dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I sit down with Mike Siner, founding winemaker at Ancient Peaks Winery in Paso Robles. How do you go from a boy growing up in Visalia, California, working in your father's automobile wrecking yard, to being a winemaker for a winery that an AVA is named after? What happens in your life to attend Cal Poly wanting to be a high school shop teacher? and end up being named 2012 Central Coast Winemaker of the Year? Well, continue listening to hear Mike tell his story. Sweet. I want to give a big shout out to me and my shadow for leaving this five-star review. Good stuff. Really well produced and some great information on the wine industry. Congrats. Thank you, me and my shadow, for listening and for leaving this fantastic review. This truly is the best way to show support of the podcast and to help let other wine lovers find Exploring the Wine Glass. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET Level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Allure of the Poor, sponsored by Dracina Wines. I am your host, Lori, UC Davis winemaking program graduate. WSET level two graduate, someday service graduate and champagne specialist and Paso all around proponent. And I am thrilled to have Mike Siner with me today, who is the winemaker from Ancient Peaks, which honestly is one of our favorite wineries and we are always visiting there. So welcome, Mike. Uh, thank you, Lori. Thank you for having us. Uh, so first of all, uh, Ancient Peaks, it, we really do enjoy it. The wines are incredible and the atmosphere in the tasting room is fantastic. Uh, but they're not, just for people to realize it, they're actually not in that main section of Paso Robles. You got to do a little drive down the freeway to get there, um, but well worth the drive. And it's literally like 10 minutes. So it's nothing, it's nothing out of control. So um, in fact, what what is the exit? The, the street that you get off? Do we it's, know? It's uh, just the Santa Margarita exit Santa into Margarita. town. Yeah. 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 22 miles south of Paso Robles. Yeah. And a little town of Margarita got about a thousand people in it, no stoplights. So it's, it's hard. We're hard to miss. No, that is true. No stoplights at all. You can just keep going straight to the winery. Um, and is the cow still there? Oh, yeah. See, yeah. Okay, in the so. great, <laughs> yes. And still there. Then we've got the art cows from the, uh, the cow parades, you know, right. which are these. Uh, that's still out front too. Okay. So. so that you can always, you can always find them right there, right there. Um, so thank you for joining me, taking time out of your busy day. Uh, my, my first question always in these interviews is the origin story. Everybody has that moment that they were like, <laughs> hmm, you know what? Wine, good stuff. I want to make this my career. So go ahead. Let's hear that origin story. 
Yeah, you know, uh, it goes back now a few years, 1991 or so, 92. Um, I went to Cal Poly here, San Luis Obispo. Mm -hmm. And when going through school, you know, I had to work to help pay for school. And uh, I never had, I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley in Visalia, California. is my hometown. Oh, and um, I'm in Fresno right now, by the way. Oh, cool. There you go. <laughs> no. uh, so, yeah. So, you know, I grew up over there. I was no food or wine background. My dad, you know, uh, our family didn't do it. He sold construction equipment, owned a junkyard for a little while. Um, and so, yeah, no food or wine background, but moved here to Cal Poly. I studied industrial technology. And a friend of mine was working in the wine business. And I was 21. And I thought, hey, that sounds good. I needed money. And uh, got the interview and got the job and drank my first three bottles of wine the night before the interview. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it was random. Uh, but once I, once I had that first job, within a few months, I realized how special this business was. And uh, ended up working for six wineries, helping put myself through school here in the end of Valley. Uh, vineyards, wineries, tasting rooms, babysitting our kids, house sitting, mowed lawn. <laughs> Form, uh, whatever it took to, to earn money. And uh, yeah, that's how I got in. And did you change your, your uh, major or did you finish that? And yeah, you know, I wrote it out. I, I thought about it. Uh, I thought about going back to Fresno state, but then, or I mean, going to, I've never been to Fresno state, but, uh, but then I, my gut was when I talked to mentors, some of my good friends today have mentored me since then. And everybody said, Hey, look, if you want to be a corporate winemaker, you probably need a degree and goes, but I knew where I just, I knew I'd, I'd be independent at some point. Um, I, and my style is not corporate. So I knew, you know, I just stuck with it and I learned so much working with those guys. And then also I had the great opportunity. I started working for Art Mondavi in 1994. So he owned Byron Winery in Santa Maria. So that once I got that job, I was like, okay, I'm working with some of the best in the world. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just finished up at Cal Poly and started working at Byron. Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy that we went through UC Davis, uh, because I thought it was very educational, but I say it all the time is the books can't tell you what mother nature is going to do. The books can't tell you those spur decisions, you know, on the spur of the moment decisions that you've got to make when you're in the vineyard and things are happening. So it really is a hands-on, um, learning experience. So. Yeah. Um, it's good to have that background. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about the history of ancient peaks. So it was founded by three like lifetime or longtime friends. Right. So, and they purchased a ranch. That's how they started. Correct. What, like what, what was their thinking back then? Yeah. So you know, we go back, we started the company in 2006. And so the three families, the Rossies, the Filipponis and the Wistrom, there's three local families. Uh, two of them went to Cal Poly and they're very, very successful guys, you know, but their, their passion, two of them, uh, Doug Filipponi and Carl Wittstrom and actually Rob too, they owned uh, about a thousand acre vineyard on the east side of Paso Robles uh, going back to the early nineties. And so they've been farming grapes for a lot of years and they had the Margarita Ranch. And so in 2001, they uh, partnered up. Now, Rob Rossi has been associated with the Santa Margarita Ranch for almost 30 years as a consultant. But in 2001, he was able to acquire the ranch. And so that's when he brought in his partners, Doug Filipponi and Carl Wittstrom. So the ranch itself is 14,000 acres. Now, at that point, there was no grapes on it. Uh, but Robert Mondavi from Napa uh, was on a big acquisition mode to acquire vineyards, land. They were expanding their vineyard holdings. And so a meetings occurred. And once Mondavi looked into these soils at the Margarita Ranch, the weather, and they wanted to buy the ranch. And the boys said, hey, well, We'll lease you. 
something. And so th- that's what happened. That's how the vineyard got planted was through negotiating 99 and really in 01, uh, 99 through 2001 is when uh, the vineyard was planted by Robert Mondavi because Mondavi had about a 36 year lease on a thousand acres. So that was the original idea was, was the families were going to sit back and just get a lease check every month from these guys. But Robert Mondavi left the wine business for a short period of time. So he sold his company and then the company who purchased them really didn't want to be growing grapes for a living. And they like to market wine. And so in 2000, August of 2005, the three families bought the lease back. Oh, and then okay. uh, come the end of Vintage of Five is when they called me. So Doug Filipponi called me. I was the winemaker. To, uh, it was called Sham Salt today. It used to be called Domain Alfred. And I uh, just got on the phone and started talking and uh, got together a couple of meetings, a couple of cups of coffee and decided to start a company, which is called Ancient Peaks now. Okay. And that's my next question is why the name Ancient Peaks? You know, it's really for the mountains. You know, the, the, the vineyard itself is at the, at the foothills there, the uh, Santa Lucia mountain range as it, in, it terminates into the, the Santa Maria River. And so as you're down in the vineyard, you can, it's surrounded by mountains. And those ancient peaks is really what has the parent material, you know, for, the, for a lot of the soils that we grow in. And just sitting out there in the vineyard, because again, we've got about a thousand acres of vineyards, but you can't see any roads, highways, and you can't see it from the road. Well, actually, we have some new plenties now. You can see a little tiny block, but for the most part, you can be in this vineyard, look 360 degrees, not see anything but mountains. And so it really, uh, when you're there, you see it and you definitely feel it. And where, so I, like I said, I've been to the winery loads of times, but where exactly is this, where's the ranch in relation to the winery? Yeah. So you're, you, you know, Paso. So the, the town of Santa Margarita is actually inside the ranch. It's a very unique situation. So when you, when you exit the 101 to come on to the Santa, to go to Santa Margarita town, you're on the ranch itself. The ranch is on both sides of the road. Oh, okay. So, just south of the town of Santa Margarita, uh, by, gosh, a quarter mile, the vineyard starts. And it goes back about six miles. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I've never actually been to the vineyard. I mean, I guess physically been in the vineyard. Uh, but I guess I have been driving through the ranch uh, without even knowing it. Um, and I guess that's why there's no, there's no uh, lights or anything, right? We don't want that in <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a weird relationship. It, the town was actually uh, Patrick, uh, oh, what was his name? Uh, Patrick Murphy owned the ranch in the 1800s. And he actually gave away the 200 acres to form the town for free. And then he gave that land to the Union Pacific Railroad. And so on the Santa Margarita Ranch, as long as they put a spur on the ranch, because his money was selling cattle from the Santa Margarita Cattle Company to the beef for the uh, 49ers of Northern California. So he wanted his own spur to go through his ranch and they agreed to that. And so he gave them the land for free and they auctioned off the lots that you see today to raise money to cut the, the tunnels through the quest to grade. So uh-huh. the Northern and Southern California was connected on the Santa Margarita Ranch in 1880. And that's the year the town was formed. Oh, so now that's going to, I guess that is my answer to my next question, because on the website, it says the Margarita Ranch is steeped in mission era history and Wild West mythology. So I'm guessing that that's, you know, being able to cut through the quest to pass. Um, that's the mission era history. But do we know what the Wild West mythology is? Uh, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. I mean, it even goes back. They, they, there's a uh... Yeah, arrowhead dated 10,000 years ago, found on the ranch today in the Santa Barbara uh, history of natural, natural museum history. So that's Crow Magnet, right? That's, that's early. Um, wow. As far as the 
phase as well, Junipero Serra. So, you know, if, if you grew up in California, you know, um, the 26 missions. And so there's a building on the ranch called an Asistencia. So the Asistencia is a small mission building in between two missions. And so the general idea is each one of those missions are supposed to be one day's travel apart. But some of those travels are pretty serious travels, such as going up the grade. So <laughs> they, those, those uh, friars uh, built a small building that's still there today called an Asistencia. So that's that era. And then forward from that, uh, Jesse, I'm sure you've, if you're in Passos, you know, the Passos Inn, and that started by Drury James, so Jesse, Jesse James' uncle. And so uh, Jesse James reportedly came through. He got shot up and he, he rested here near his, his uncle's ranch up in uh, Paso, but he came through the margarita and kind of hung out for a bit. So that's kind of some of the old stuff there. And do you know anything? I, I had never heard of this before. And then I read it somewhere. And of course, I was like in a rush. And I'm like, okay, I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. And then I couldn't find it again. Tunnels that Jesse James went through. Is that news to I, you too? Maybe I was dreaming it. That's why I couldn't find it again. <laughs> you know what? Carl is one of the owners. He's kind of our historian. Boy, he's got, I love going out with him because I always learn more stories. He's always discovering stories. So I'll, I'll ask him up and follow up and see what, yeah. see if there's from Jesse James tunnels. <laughs> yeah, something about tunnels that that he was he was running through or whatever and then I literally couldn't find it again. So it is a distinct possibility that I dreamt it and then couldn't that's why I couldn't find it. But you know, sometimes I have very vivid dreams, <laughs> you know. Um all right, so uh you started talking about ancient peaks in 2000 or you started working in 2006 and uh, you, what was the winery you said you were start, you started at? Well, I started uh, in 91 working for small brands in the Edmond Valley, like Sausalito Canyon, Claiborne and Churchill. Oh, okay. Pierre. But then in fast forward to 2006, I was working at Chamisol winery. Okay. And then that's and they called me, Doug called me just to ferment some grapes from them. They had extra grapes. There's a large vintage. So I ended up fermenting hundred tons for them. And then we just got talking and together we started a company. And today that company, it's became ancient peaks basically. Okay. Oh, so that's what, see now you see, you lead me right into my next questions because it says founding winemaker. So I was like, all right, that, yeah. that's a new one. <laughs> I don't know what a founding winemaker is. So you actually are part of, of ancient peaks development. Yes, from the very beginning to yes, it, it was the, the three families were not really in the wine business before we started together. And so they had grown grapes for many years. They're amazing business guys. Uh, but together we, we started this company. And so um, that's, uh, yeah, I go back to before we had the word ancient peaks in the company. Yes. So we, we formed it all together. And, uh, and as the winemaker in charge of winemaking, and, um, but most of the time, almost all the time, uh, Stuart Cameron was my assistant winemaker. And uh, about some years ago now, three, four years ago, we promoted him to winemaker. So that's really where that, that title comes in. Stuart really runs the day-to-day -day operations, which allows me to be in the vineyards with Jaime Munoz, our vineyard manager, uh, just checking in with Stuart, you know, and, and help with sales and just, just being that, I guess, the old guy now. <laughs> I look around. <laughs> I'm like, I used to be the kid around But yeah, right. I'm so old. So. Right. I remember when you looked around and everybody was older than you. And now all of a sudden, hmm, <laughs> now they're looking yeah. at me as the old person. Um, another really cool thing about Ancient Peaks is that um, not only is the Santa Margarita Ranch, but it's also the AVA. So like, how cool is that, that the AVA is named after, after your 
area, your it, ranch. Yeah, we're super honored by that. I mean, and, but it is, it just goes to the uniqueness of what Santa Margarita Ranch and Ancient Peaks is. You know, um, back, I guess it was 2014, I believe, is, or maybe 17, I forget the exact year, but uh, the Paso Wine Alliance got together and, and petitioned to have nestled AVAs within the Paso AVA. So first and foremost, we're Paso. But, you know, the idea of having east side, west side divided by the 101 was ridiculous. I, you know, everybody knows the AVAs were kind of invented uh, in the spirit of the AOC from France. And you need to have, you know, weather differences, soil differences. And for your name, you have to have historical presence. You have to, it has to be something historical that goes back a long time. And that's really where the Santa Margarita Ranch sub AVA came in because that ranch has direct ties, uh, written history going back to the 1700s still here. So um, that it was just a happenstance, but again, another unique aspect to Ancient Peaks and Santa Margarita Ranch. And now you you also have a second vineyard, the Margarita Vineyard is, or? It's the same one. We're the Santa Margarita, it's the Santa Margarita Ranch. We have a Santa Margarita Vineyard, but the brand is called Ancient Peaks. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So like you'll you know, with our, our entry level wines, we don't put a state bottle on there. We could. Uh, but for our white label, for our, we call pearl collection, our reserve wines, you will see that vineyard designation on the bottle itself. Okay. Wonderful. Um, and then, uh, so all of your fruit is a state. We, you don't source it, from anything. Correct. Yeah, it is correct. We're, we're, we're net sellers. So we're selling fruit to people, good friends here locally, people from Napa come down. Uh, so we're, we really bottled about one third of what we grow under to ancient people. So that really is a key part of if we've had success is that, you know, from our, our perspective in wine making and growing, we get to go out there and just, you know, have the, the uh, cut of, of the beef, you know, and uh, get know the blocks as well as we do and be able to utilize what we want to utilize and then share it with everything else we want to do with, with everybody else in terms of selling fruit. And how many, how many uh, varieties are, are under vine? Got about 16 different varieties. Yeah, Most, mostly is, red. Yeah, mostly red. Our whites are, include Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc. Um, right now, that's all we had. A little bit of Muscat is still there, um, hmm. and so we've had Roussan. That's gone, and that, that's what for the whites. The cab, you know, the reds are pretty Bordeaux heavy. Cabernet, you know, Merlot. We've got some Zin, Syrah too. Petit Verdot, Malbec. That's Verdot and Malbec are probably. We have a lot of that for, for as far as total acreage, you know, again, everything's on a 14,000 acre ranch. Everything's just bigger. It's like Texas, you know? And so, <laughs> you know, we just went and bought some quads. We bought five quads at one time, you know? And so um, it's, uh, everything's bigger. So we look at Malbec and Petit Verdot. We've got like 40 acres of each of those varietals planted, you know? Oh my gosh. That's so, got to be so, like the highest number in. It, it, it's big. Yeah. yeah. I, in fact, I, I did a research, I did a heavy dive for a, uh, a, a real seminar. I was a guest at the Iwani Lodge in Yosemite and, and me and Dan Berger from LA Times, uh, he was a moderator, you know, and so I was there representing ancient peaks. And so I did a real lengthy discussion on Verdot and Malbec. And that year, I think that was, uh, I forget the year it was, but we owned that ranch. Uh, Margarita here had like 9% of all the Malbec in California. So yeah, that's uh, crazy. That yeah, is crazy. It, significant. And we got small amounts of, we just put in some new Italian stuff. So that hasn't even come into the winery yet. But So we're playing with some Sangiovese, a little bit of Nebbiolo um, coming online next year. 
that seems to be a new up and coming concept for Paso. More more people are planting Italian varietal varieties and things. I get you know. Yeah, I think there's there was some, definitely some pioneers a while ago. That Martin Brothers back in the day, I can remember being kind of focused on it. Uh, but yeah, there's been some young brands, Jornada in particular. Right. There's some great wine. So um, yeah, uh, we, we're excited about it. I think, you know, I know Stuart Cameron, that was one of his projects. He He's really passionate about Italian wine. So we're like, yeah, all right, let's get some in the ground and see what we can do. You know, again, those are, those are what we're not going to distribute those products. So um, we're very focused on what we distribute and how we go to market. So we don't, one of the things we don't do is, is have a lot of SKUs for a company of our size. We only have five SKUs we sell in the country. That's it. Oh, okay. okay. So, but 16 plus varietals nice. and all sorts of quality, but we, we go to market for wholesale. It's very focused. Whereas that small stuff I'm speaking to is you got to be a wine club member. You got to come in and taste some of the specialty wines. Right. And I think that that's another um, thing that is the positive of Paso is how, um, different, the different varieties that can grow well in Paso, you know, and, and I think that's one of the things that makes Paso Paso, in addition to the people, because I think the people are better than any other, any other wine region ever. Um, but like, just, you know, they, you can grow what you want, you know, and it grows well, and it's learned, you know, the soil accepts so many different varieties in Paso. And that's not true in a lot of wine regions. Without a doubt, I mean, it really goes to me, it goes back to geology and location and having these two tectonic plates, you know, you've got the Pacific tectonic plate going underneath the Northern continental, uh, North American continental plate. And it just leads to diversity of soil profile in a very short period of time. I mean, you're, you're, you're in Fresno and I know the San Joaquin very well, uh, but it's pretty, pretty standard soil profile, super high organic material whites, some of the best vegetables and tree, tree uh, fruits in the whole world. Um, but it's, it's not very diverse, not very dynamic. Whereas on the coast here, we got all these different soil types and then we got all these hills. And so all these different facings and stuff, you can, the temperatures are amazing. I mean, within Paso, you got, you know, Windward Pinot Noir doing a great job right next to him is Stefano Sejo, you know? And so just little tiny hills, these great different soils really leads to that diversity, which is definitely a hallmark for this area. Right. And in your AVA, you're actually a Winkler scale too. So that, I mean, for those who are listening to Winkler scale is how we determine, you know, the temperature of the, of the region, basically on the days, but uh, two is cold. Two is pretty <laughs> <Yeah>. cold. <laughs> um, so what I'm, you know, it's the Santa Lucia mountains that, that do that. Can you talk about how your location, like, What's your, you know, how does that impact your vineyard sites? Certainly. Yeah, it, it is a major aspect of life in Margarita. You know, um, it is a cold spot in Paso. Uh, we're the only sub-ABA that doesn't even touch another sub-ABA. Uh, as I said before, we're 22 miles south of Paso. We're 14 miles to the, the ocean. As the crow flies, about eight miles to the Edna Valley AVA. So we really are, are pushing the edge in some of these Bordeaux varietals. Again, one of the, uh, to an example, back when we got together in 06, one of the first things we did, we had uh, block 33, 34, and 35 were all uh, Cabernet, and it never got ripe. It just, it was struggling for ripeness. So we grafted it to Pinot Noir, and boom, we put in 60 acres of Pinot Noir. So, and it's done well. So um, it is definitely on the edge of ripeness, you know, in terms of being able to fully ripen Bordeaux varietals, but 
you know, one of our mantras, and we, you hear, we hear it a lot, but it's, it's, it's a very true aspect of the wine business. And it's something I, I, I mean, great fortune of going to Europe twice with Robert Mondavi company, you know, in France, you know, is, is when you're on the edge of ripeness is where you achieve greatness because that's where it's hard to ripen. And when things are easy to ripen, they're interesting, but they're not as complex. They might be good. They might be more consistent, but when you're on the edge of rightness is where you can really achieve really interesting things. And when you think about France and see the Burgundy, when you go down South and pull it for say, yeah, it makes some good Chardonnay. It's nice. Cote de Cote d'Or, it's pretty interesting. Chivalry gets really extreme up to, up to champagne. You're just changing what you're doing because you no longer can fully get brain to ripeness than what you're trying to do. And so it is definitely a challenge, Margarita. We have frosts uh, twice a year. So we frost mm. in the normal time period in terms of, springtime you know late spring frosts but we freeze we frost frosted in september's and october's too so it is a, a challenging spot to grow grapes and again uh, no, no longer do we have a second vineyard in ownership we used to the guys used to have a thousand acres on the east side of fast robles so you know we're a team running two one thousand acre vineyards and out there it was nothing everything was just so much easier you know your your pressures were, were less for mildew uh, ripeness was just easy and, and came in really early. And whereas the margarita is definitely challenges, but at the end of the day, that's really why it's the absolute highest reason for the success of ancient peaks is its location of vineyard. And so when, when are you harvesting till what's your last thing that you're bringing in? And when is that? Yeah. You know, we've gone almost into December before, you know, definitely <laughs> that year and it was fixed but after it was after Thanksgiving when they fall. So yeah, again, this last five years, 10 years, we've seen a lot of change of weather has changed a lot, but uh, it's nothing for us to, it's nothing for Paso to be 50, past 50% completed in the, or, you know, harvested off the vine and then we get started. So yeah, it, wow. it's a long one. Yeah, wow. Wow. So I have said multiple times that I absolutely love your tasting room. And one of the things that I think is fantastic about the tasting room, which you guys have transferred over to your bottles, is that wall, the cylinders of the soils that you have at the ranch. Yeah. And yes, so for those who are watching, okay, on the back of their labels, they have these soil types. And if you go into the tasting room, they've got these big fat cylinders filled with these soils. So can you, uh, and by the way, this is the Renegade. Okay. This is the Renegade. So um, this is a Malbec, uh, a Syrah Malbec, Petit Verdot, Zinfandel, and Petit Syrah blend. So you want to tell us a little bit about Renegade and then talk about these lovely uh, soils in the back of your labels. And I'm going to certainly yeah. you doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Renegade is a fun wine. You know, our first vintage is 09 with that. Uh, we had a straw before that, but we changed it into a red blend. And so Amanda Whitstrom Higgins, who's our uh, vice president of all operations, and she uh, she came to winemaking and said, hey, guys, you know, do a, a blend uh, but it has to be based on Syrah, but use whatever you want to finish it. So that's where it'll always be. The majority varietal will always be Syrah for us. But then we started getting into Bordeaux, Malbecs, Zins. We've done Merlot in there. We, we'll put anything in there. We just want to make a great wine. It's fun. Um, and what's great about Renegade for us from a winemaking perspective is that one of our over in the, the varietal category for us, the Cabs and Merlot, the Zins, having varietal typicity is very important to us. It's part of our founding mantra in terms of bringing forth the varietal correctness. 
Uh, we really saw it just we just see so often people are pushing ripeness or oak influence to push a wine into it to get recognized and not so much varietal typicity. And so um, we're re we really work with that within our, our wines. But then with Renegade, we can push ripeness a little bit. We get to that kind of little heavier structured blend of wines. So that's a little more creative in winemaking. Um, as far as the soils on the ranch, yeah, it's, it's really what we focus on. You know, we, we don't do a lot of, you know, clonal work. And, and, and I think that stuff's all been played out pretty well. So we're really focused on what the flavor aspects and what comes of each soil type. And so we really felt it was important to reflect onto each bottle. So for each varietal and where we predominantly gotten the, the grapes from is you'll see that down to the exact soil profile. We have five distinctive soil profiles we've identified on the ranch. And so when we go to put those blends together, that's what we look up. And so, each, you know, each consumer can turn that bottle around and on that bottle is going to tell you exactly what soils it came from. So that for us, it's kind of, you know, it's just being, getting, talking and, and communicating to that geeky person who really wants to know exactly where their wine's coming from, but yet deliver it in a, in a, you know, a price point that you can drink every day. And so as I'm tasting this, you, I think on the nose, it's, it's very much a Syrah and it's, it's 37%, but on the nose, it's got, it's very much Syrah. It's got that like meatiness to it, that gaminess to it, but it is staining my glass. <laughs> it is staining my glass. So I'm going to go with a little petite Syrah and petite Verdot is doing that. That's give it, that gives it the body um, or the color I mean, but it's, it's beautiful. It's the, um, by the nose, I definitely would say it's it's Syrah. I don't know if you have an opinion of what's giving what to the aromas. Yeah, it, what's really fun about Margarita Syrah is, and again, to look at think about Syrah. Syrah is one of those varietals that is can do really well in both extremes, right? When you take a, a Cabernet planted when it's really cold, doesn't do too well, right? Pinot Noir planted when it's super hot, doesn't do well. But Syrah, you can have cold climate Syrah and warm climate Syrah. And so for Margarita, a lot of that color is coming from the base Syrah in the glass. Really? And so, okay. it, yeah, it's not like cold climate Syrah, like coming out of Santa Rita Hills or Edna Valley. Uh, but it's certainly not a, a pastoral Syrah, you know, or as the warmth to it. So it's right in between. And for me, I think that's a big part of the flavor of that wine is coming through uh, for me. Um, the Zin... There's a, I think on the, on the uh, palate, there's a little zen because there's that little hint of kick in there that I think that, that your zen that, always, to me, always has. Uh, like that spice. Little zin. Yeah. That little spice. Yeah. zen uh, has been a great one for us. You know, it's, our zen is definitely, it's because of the ranch. It, it has a little different, it lines up pretty differently in the marketplace. It's, it's more of an old school claret style. It doesn't have that weight. Gosh. Uh, yeah, that white pepper, black pepper kind of thing on the Zin uh, really comes through too. And I, I mean, I don't have, I don't have the Zin. We'll talk about the other wines, but that Zin I think is by far one of the top everyday wines that everybody should have in their house because it is, it is a killer wine. It, it and it, I, I mean, I don't know what it's, I don't know if you know what it retails for, but it is like so affordable for the quality that you're getting out of that. Yeah, it retails around 20, but 20. you know, wine clubbers are getting that stuff for 18 bucks, you know? Yeah, it, it's, yeah. Uh, it, that's how we started the whole company. You know, again, in 2006, that's two years after Sideways, and no one was starting anything for value, you know? And, and so it was certainly unheard of at that time period in our business. Nobody was starting projects, but these guys have a lot of resources, got a big ranch. 
And, um, and it was an interesting to come to market with the wines. And then suddenly in 2008, nine, when the economy just went to heck, uh, we just, it really blew up ancient yeah. peaks because people bought down, you know, it's like we saw with this pandemic, you know, people are, are they drinking more alcohol? Yeah, they are. Unfortunately they are. And they're drinking down, right. and, you know, ancient peaks is that wine you can afford every day. So that's what we started off doing. It's like, love hearing people say that. Yeah. And, and it, I think it has the quality of what every wine drinker wants is all right. So it's 20 bucks, but it tastes like 50, you know, and it's, it's so much better when it's in that direction than <laughs> the other direction. right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at our, our scores, reviews and stuff. That's often, we're just getting, you know, for acute quality price ratio. I mean, we, that's exactly right. When we line up our wines, even when we have some reserve wines, we've got an Oyster Ridge at 60 bucks a bottle or something. And yeah, we go head to head with people from Napa anywhere. And we always do really well. And that's really the ancient peaks, the take home. And what people really know us for is just over delivering. And, you know, that's at that price point, you've got a wine that's one vineyard, certified, sustainable, family-owned, you know, and, and now we've got a few years putting it in, so we do have a track record. And now, a word from our sponsor. Looking to be in the know about Dracaena Wines? Want to be the first to know about our new releases and special offers? All you need to do is sign up for our newsletter. There is no commitment necessary, and I promise you we won't spam your mailbox with loads of messages. Need another reason to sign up? Quite possibly the best reason? You'll immediately get a discount code for 10% off your first purchase and be privy to newsletter-only discounts. Let Dracaena Wines turn your moments into great memories. Visit our website, www.dracaenawines.com, or use the link in show notes to sign up. It will take you less than a minute, but the rewards will last a lifetime. So of these five uh, soil types that you have, which in its own right is so unique that you've got one ranch that's got all of these, right? You know, normally it's, you know, this AVA has this soil type, this AVA has this soil type, you know, wherever you are, but you've got these five soil types within your one ranch. So how... Was it trial and error? Like, what are you planting on the ancient seabed? And, you know, what are you planting in, in the shale? Or, you know, or you got a whole bunch of varieties in that so that they can express themselves differently? What's the logic behind your plantings? Yeah, the, we don't really have, as we're putting new stuff under vine, mostly it's redevelopment. We only have one kind of block we've planted fresh. Um, it's not so much about matching the varietals to the, to the soil types, but it's more about having diversity. So with a given area, we're not just going to put cap or Merlot in. We're going to put a little bit, a little bit of a few different grapes there. So to me, it's about having the diversity um, and having all those soil components represented through a, one varietal in the end. So it's just, it's layers of complexity. That's really what we see, you know, and, and we see that some of these clones, some of these, these plantings come earlier, uh, some of them come out later. And it just brings a, a complexity to the wine that is d- derived right back to those having diversity of soil. So I think to me, it's always about diversity versus just having that one singular flavor. And that's what's going to add to the dimension in the wine. That's what's going to, you know, so each time you take that sip, there's something different that you can find in that wine. Is by exactly. Oh, and Stuart can higher taste wines. It's, you know, we got Cabernet on every soil. Cabernet is so strong. We have so many acres of it. We have on every soil profile, some of, you know, some of the replicated, you know, 
row orientations also. So yeah, it is just, it's amazing how, how different again, the vineyard, it is unique. I mean, it's six miles tip to tip. So there is a lot of different, uh, weather is slightly different weather experiences, but yeah, it's just, it brings the complexity and diversity. Diversity is bringing the complexity. It's a good thing. You've got those quads now, <laughs> six miles, yeah. get a good workout. Oh, huh? There's something to, to get on that. Yeah. Just to go take hours and then you, you, know, you get a one, a fix of machinery and then suddenly you're like oh my gosh you forget your stuff and it's it's you got it, it's wild wild west stuff out there <laughs> that's wonderful that's that's actually pretty cool um so going going back to uh the renegade okay with all of these soil types and all of the variations of your plantings within these soil types take me through your blending trials for Renegade. So I'm assuming everything is fermented independently. You're not co-fermenting anything or are you? No, it's pretty much independent. Okay. We do, we've got co-fermenting small experiments going on, but from a, you know, a strategic perspective, they're pretty separate. And so, yeah, what we're going to do, you know, we're, we're blending it, you know, starting pruning, right? I mean, cause we, in order to be in business, you've got to be sustainable. And the first rule of sustainability is making a profit. So <laughs> So we're thinking about it in the beginning because we're going to do different crop loads based on price points. So that's what, that's really where it gets started. And, and all throughout the year, we're going to invest more money in the blocks that we think is going to go in renegade. You know, it's a little more expensive wine. Uh, so we, we that, therefore we can spend a little bit more on the cost of goods. And so we're going to try to do some better viticulture to certain areas for that. And then when it comes to the kind of the normal think about blending of a wine, you know, Stuart and I are going to really take a deep dive in Syrah, taste every Syrah we have and just put a food chain together. We call it food chain in it. So we said, oh, this is our best one. And then sometimes we will break out Syrah into a small bottling for wine club, you know. So we've got some pretty cool different Syrahs. And we've had some whole cluster Syrah we've done, 100% whole cluster. And uh, we've done jackpot Syrah, which is really ripe. And it's just one of those big, heavier style ones. But we're going to food chain it. Maybe we're going to, if it's really inspiring, we might take it to a couple of hundred cases to the wine club. And then we get to that volume where we feel really comfortable in hundred uh, percent because before that they've got to give us what was needed for the next vintage volume wise. Then we taste that wine and ask ourselves, okay, how can we improve this wine? And so in certain years for a lot of times it's Petit Verdot, Malbec have been really the supporting cast for that wine, but in certain years Zinfandel has been, been a great support to it. So we're just trying to make that wine better with the ability to kind of think outside the box more. So not having that verotopicity as a design parameter. And so um, that's really what, that's how we do it. We start with Syrah, find our the best of the best. And then we sell off a lot of stuff. We're selling Syrah to other people as bulk wine, you know? And so we, we have that ability to, to make that food chain and, and, and take away anything that's not of the quality that we like to see. And then they're just going to add the other varietals and see where it goes from there. So it's like mad science. I, I try to explain to people what it's like, right? You're like, okay, well this year, and that's what's nice. I think when you do like something like a renegade is because you're, you're Syrah based, but you're not tied in to the other varieties being in there. So some years you may have Zin, right? Some years you may not, some, right? And your percentages change. So it's kind of like play day, you know, play <laughs> days, I'm guessing with, with your, how many you've got. Yeah, for sure. It is, it is about being creative, about looking forward and seeing potential and having the open-mindedness to try new things. That's really important. I think uh, we sometimes we can get in these rut, ruts in life where, oh, you know, we just have to be, he's got a good score, 93 or something on, on that wine. And, oh, well, let's do that same blend again. It's like, no, no, no. 
that's that weather. That's that vintage. And so we've got to remain open to, to different, to have it even better than that. So it is renegade is probably the most creative one we deal with and the oyster Ridge too. We have a Cabernet based, uh, very expensive wine. And so th those are probably the funnest to work with because they're not, they're generally are not varietal on the label. So you really can uh, get creative and, uh, more of that mad scientist experience. Right. Um, so let's go into one of the, your varietals. You have um, Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. Yeah. This is your, that's, your that's, Cab Sauv. Um, tell us about this, this wine, uh, how you get to that. And then uh, I also have a question. 35 North, 120 West. You got to tell me what that is. <laughs> those, that, those are GPS coordinates. Okay. Again, we're just love having minutia details that not everybody can put on their labels you know i mean that that's a level of details that anybody who's out there buying fruit or buying bulk wine they're not going to be able to tell you <laughs> your north latitude longitude of where your vineyard is at so uh, that, that just sort of represents how specific we are and what we do cabernet Sauvignon is just it's our lead varietal it is for pastoralists but something i'm very proud of with the ownership team in ancient peaks is when we got started we definitely took in some advice from uh, people, I come from winemaking, grape growing. That's, that's what I do. Um, but I don't come from a real sales background. So we did bring in some advisement. We talked to, we, we got pretty quick with a, a large distributor and, uh, in California. And the, the president of that company really wanted us to focus on Zinfandel and Syrah. Did not want us to do Cabernet Sauvignon. This is back in 06. And we're showing the 05 wines. And so Cabernet really wasn't, hadn't kicked up as, as much as you see today and so we, we heard that from them but we came home and tasted and just made our own decision we said you know what we're going to focus on cab you know his perspective he is a very napa based person as a lot of people in this business are and, and he really hadn't seen cabernet of this style coming out of pastor Robles, you know and so we just felt it was unique and we just really wanted to focus on it so i'm very happy that we stood our own guard and, and really looked at what we owned and said decided to make that the, the focus varietal and the industry has really come along and luckily Cabernet is, is definitely king as far as sales. So that really helps to not have some eclectic, uh, you know, it's fun to make Tyrol to go on like Ryan, but it's, uh, you don't want to be doing too much volume of that stuff. And now this wine comes from ancient seabed, rocky alluvium and shale. So I think most people can figure out ancient seabed, right? I mean, that's a lot of it. Uh, rocky alluvium. So what is alluvium and what makes it rocky? Yeah, so alluvium, rocky alluviums are like basically, another word for it is rubble. So it's usually two, a minimum two to four, as many as it could be, different soil profiles that have come together in a lower spot. So it, it's more like those alluvial fans is what, you're, what I'm speaking to. So basically, as that, it, through erosion, uh, you, you gain this material that's pretty diverse, you know, and since it's low, it historically generally has had some rivers going through it prehistorically. So there's a lot of rock to it. So that's what those rocky alluviums are, is this rock and, and combinations of different soil profiles without one singular parent material. Whereas your ancient seabed is, is oyster shells we have. That, that's, the, it, that's the parent material. And it, it is very one style, you know, a granitic is a, that's the parent material. So rocky alluviums are several that have come together. So um, that's what the rocky alluviums are. And then the shell is speaking to Monterey shell, which is pretty common here on the, on the central coast of California. And uh, it does really, does really well uh, for wines. You know, it has nice porosity. Uh, the, the, the actual stratified shales themselves hold water really nicely, kind of like limestone does where it brings water in and it, it releases it much slower than 
when it percolating through the soil itself. So it, you'll find that uh, those, when you have that really light soils that percolate very quickly, but yet those rock, those shale will help maintain water, which is a great benefit for the grapes. <coughs> Excuse me. And now the, the wine, the vineyard itself, you had kind of mentioned it a little bit, but I want to get into it more is SIP certified. So can you explain, I mean, that's that, I love hearing that. So can you explain to my listeners what SIP certified is and a little bit, because it is entailed, uh, what is required in order to be SIP certified? Certainly, certainly. So SIP certification is a sustainability in practice. So that, that's what the acronym is. So when you think about uh, ecological farming, you know, you basically historically three different components, right? You've got organic vineyard, you might have a biodynamic vineyard and a sustainable vineyard. No one talks about conventional. Nobody brags about these spray all chemicals, but a lot of people. Do. But so let's run down that for everybody. So organics is, you know, generally in California, CCOF is your certifying agency. And they just give you a list of materials that you're allowed to use. End of story. That's it. So if, if you use nothing but these materials on your property, then you're fine. You're, you can, in three years, you're certified. With biodynamics, it requires your least sort of, you know, do you have certification in organics? And then on top of that, you have to use uh, the philosophies and the executions uh, that may put forth by Rudolf Steiner in his, his lecture in 1924. So it's kind of organic and a little bit beyond that. With sustainability, what really attracted us to that was it's a little bit bigger of a worldview. It's taught in sustainability and getting certified sustainable. Yes, they want to know our water usage. They want to know how we're reducing that. They want to know... Uh, what we're doing to reduce passes to the vineyard to conserve on, on uh, materials. But they're going to ask you, they also ask you, what have you done for education for your employees? What's your pay rate industry average? Do you recycle in the office? You know, so there, it's more of a tutorial, a, 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 I think a bigger worldview of it, of mm -hmm. what's going on in that farming operation. And there's flexibility there too. You know, if you have to use a material, they're going to take you through a process of saying, okay, how, you know, you've got something you got to deal with. You can deal with it at a small level, but you don't, they don't want to see, you know, absolutely, you know, just carpet spray, everything. We've got maybe some, uh, you know, leaf offer issues. You know, the old guard or somebody, who, people who don't have that environmental vent might just spray the whole vineyard for, for leaf hoppers. Whereas if you've got a major outbreak in the sustainability program, you're going to put more eyes in the field and then you're going to identify exactly where it's coming from and maybe spot treat that. So um, you get, downgraded in points but it doesn't kick you out of the program so that, that's a nice flexibility to it to get you to you know make again put you in that sustainable uh realm you know and for 1,000 acres it, it's, it's we feel that's where we need to be and, and we really enjoy being in the program and that's that's not easy work especially at a thousand acres it's not that's not easy work it's a lot of it's a lot of um paying attention to what's going on to make it to make the vineyard a better place for everything Without a doubt. And that's, that's really the first rule of anything ecologically farming is you've got to change your own perspective, your own personal worldview and how you look at things. And so, uh, yeah, and we think it's, we think it makes better wine. We think it makes better environment for our people to work in. And that's why we do it. Awesome. And now the last wine that we're going to talk about is your Chardonnay. Okay. Yeah. So 2019 Chardonnay, uh, is this 100% Chard? Yes, it is. It is 100% Chardonnay. It's uh, approximately 85, 4% tank fermented, plus or minus. So, and then we've kind of got definitely uh, down as far as style with that wine. And that's, 
that is the newest wine that we're distributing nationally. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was been really fun. Amanda and her, her sales crew really put Stuart I through the ringer. Uh, we tasted you know, a couple of hundred Chardonnays over the course of a few weeks, you know, every price point, you know, just tons of them. And just sort of really every wine before that was this kind of like a startup mode. We're just doing it. Whereas Chardonnay was really thought out. That was really great experience to go through. And so, uh, and again, it's a varietal that, you know, you don't think of Chardonnay and Paso Robles too often, but again, it really shows how cool we are in Paso Robles. And we spent a lot of time taking it to market. You know, we, we probably made Chardonnay for four to five years before we actually distributed one that we, we were comfortable with. We felt that the, the, the combination of quality price point was there for us. So uh, yeah, mostly tank ferment, a little bit of barrel ferment, but all off the estate. And so it is, um, you have five months in stainless steel, which is 70% and then 30% French oak. Is it, is that uh, a combined of new French oak and uh, neutral or is it all neutral? All new? It's a combination of both. Yeah. The oak program, we've got some barrel ferment and we, we do another Chardonnay called it on the Pearl Collection. So that one's got a lot of new oak. We use Demi as our, our preferred uh, Cooper's out of the village of Merceau. And so, yeah, that those barrel ferment lots, we'll go through those, we'll go through those lots. Again, food chain, like I said earlier, find the best of the best. That gets bottled as Pearl Collection Chardonnay, which is in the taste room only. And then that other component, we'll lay that into the tank fermenting and stuff and just see where we're at. That percentage is going to really, it bounces around a little bit depending on the vintage and how it's uh, expressing itself through Chardonnay. And now I just found out when we first started talking by looking in your background that you do also make a sparkling. So I need to, we need to share the information about your sparkling. We do. Yeah. Peaks. We just started playing with it. Boy, we, the ownership talked about it years ago when we started, but we held them off and said, Hey guys, let's get focused. But you know, as the company has grown, Stuart's got a great team he's working with and, and we, uh, we felt it was time to start to experiment with that. So yeah, a couple of vintages ago, we started making some sparkling wines, and so we're gonna have we're gonna be launching uh, two separate wines here this this year. Uh, again, very, very small volume wine club, pretty much. You know, you got to buy it at our place, but we're gonna kind of have a nice reserve style one, with longer in barrel, uh, more of that rich creamy style, and then one's lighter, lighter, fruitier. Uh, Pinot ones has Pinot Noir as its base, and one has Chardonnay as its base. So uh, both done in method Champenois uh, technique. Yeah, something new on the horizon. That is awesome. And that that brings in like a whole other ballgame into the winery. I mean, that's like a whole other process, winemaking process to to deal with sparkling wine and and pet, you know, or pet gnats or whatever. Um, I mean, nervous, excited combination of both. Like it's a whole different ballgame. It really is. I held I mean. I'm not a very technical winemaker. I never have been. I'm, I mean, I'm very focused on, on grapes and, and the techniques I picked up in my travels and it's very old world and what I do. And so I just, I've stayed away from champagne. I just, I just rather buy it. <laughs> Same with I'd rather buy port and buy champagne. I don't want to make it, but um, I started with, with, uh, you know, Petriol Natural, you know, Pet Nats in 2015 and, and gained personal experience, you know, for three or four years before we, we launched the program in ancient peak. So uh, yeah, we feel comfortable doing it now, and uh, but we'll see. You know, it'll be, it's I think it, it's something we're all excited about. So, but rubber meets the road is when you get it out there and you get the public to taste it. So hopefully, sometime this year that we get to taste the first sparkling wine from Ancient Peaks. Fantastic! I can't wait. I'll, I will be in line for that for that tasting. Um, 
All right. So we're almost out of time, but I want to get into a little bit because in addition to just making exceptional wines, you guys also have uh, Oyster Ridge and then the Margarita Adventures. And so it's like a a come for wine and stay for so much more. So you want to just give a little bit more information about that? Oh, certainly. You know, it's, it's, again, it's part of owning these guys owning a 14,000 acre ranch, you know, and, and they're the first families in the history of the ranch. And again, I guess, well, the recent history, when I say recent, I'll call it early 1800s. They're the first owners of the ranch to actually work the ranch themselves. So every other owner had owned it from afar, whether it was up in San Francisco, out in Texas, other people owned it and just sort of had it run by someone. So they're here working and doing it themselves. And to that end, it's about creating revenue streams. And so, and these guys, they're very successful, successful business guys. So uh, like the, the zipline company, Carl Wittstrom uh, was the guy that really headed up from ownership and it started off as a big boy toy. You know, what do you do when you own a 4,000 acre ranch? He built a zipline. Well, again, it's Marguerite, it's Carl. So uh, it ended up, his first line was a, I don't know, 160 foot off the ground and huge. It's, it's, was one of the most massive zip lines is massive. And now there's six separate zip lines and Marguerite Adventures is its own standalone company. It's got its own employees and uh, it's got all these Hummers and it's now a two and a half hour tour and is is really a destination. And the governor of California gave him an award for tourism. It was such a unique experience. And so uh, that, that has been great. You know, the other one is Oyster Ridge Barn. And that's, was just the idea of, of sharing the ranch, you know, <clears throat> the zipline and the barn is kind of that same thing, you know, agriculturalists. And as you know, from the San Joaquin Valley, a lot of time agriculturists are not that good at telling their stories. And so we really worked on that. And so that zipline, we worked a lot of that zipline and the, the oysterage barn into telling the story of agriculture in, in, in Santa Margarita ranch. And so the, it's a great wedding venue. Basically it's a beautiful barn. It's totally outrigged and it's built for speed for big parties and big weddings. So it's smack dab right in the, middle of the vineyard. In fact, it's, it's one of those, I, I know it's one of the most beautiful spots in the whole ranch. And so uh, that barn has been obviously pre-COVID and luckily uh, pandemic seems to be, is, is winding down. We will be back to normal here. Uh, you know, we, it's going to get back. And so it feels like but in this year, things are starting to happen. So a uh, great place to have a wedding, have a party and enjoy outdoors, wine and good friends. And with the pandemic, uh, you guys do have that that little bit of outdoor space that that wrap around porch or whatever. So I'm assuming you're doing tastings, and now we're opening up all over. So so how can people come taste Ancient Peaks? Yeah, come on in. You can walk in, see if there's a table available. You can call ahead for reservation. But we got quite a bit of seating outdoors, and so yeah, just come on in and see what's available. You know, if it's uh, weekends, it's always better to call ahead and make some reservations. But uh, walk-ins is there too. So, and we have a cafe that still continues to operate. So, so, good. Really, so good. Oh yeah. That, <laughs> they're doing a great job in there. And those grab and go things really helped us turn the hardcore lockdown. People just, you know, grabbed a couple of dinners and a couple of bottles went home. So um, yeah, the cafe is operating and uh, we're pouring wine outdoors. So. And it is, it's pretty, it's nice. Cause it's got your, you've got your front porch area that's got a few seats on it but then it wraps around into right into the larger area it does yeah i don't know the exact seating number outside but it, it's it's a good 40 you know 20 to 40 yeah more than 20 yeah it's, it's a good area for sure and, yeah. and uh, last year they installed misters too so when it gets hot for the summer they get everybody nice and keep everybody cool fantastic fantastic and then just last where where can they find ancient peaks on social media 
you know, ancient, just Google ancient peaks, you know, and <laughs> they're and everywhere. Yeah, I just, you know, I'm pretty sure we feed Instagram and that populates Facebook and I think it populates Twitter. Uh, Instagram is a great place to stay up with what's going on. I mean, or the team, Amanda's got her team and they just do a rocking job. So they, everything's quite a bit up to date and pretty robust. Website is is solid. I get that feedback from my wholesale friends or dragging the bag, you know, selling the wines out there around the country that it, all the information is there. We really make it really easy to to people to acquire that information. So quick Google search, you should find everything you need. Okay. And then the Renegade is tasting room only or club no, no. or is that out in distribution? That is one of the distributed wines. So you'll find okay. yeah, 46 states around the country. Okay. Wonderful. And they can just go online and place an order. And as long as they're not in freezing Texas or New Jersey, <laughs> New York, <laughs> the shipping can yeah. go. You bet. Yeah, we, we ship to almost every state. It's, it's definitely a robust, uh, that type of company. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you taking your time to uh, share all the information about Ancient Peaks and the wines. And this, this Renegade is absolutely beautiful. Um, here's a label one more time. And I really do love how there's just so much information and easily to understand so much information on the labels. It really does show that not only are you proud of the wine, but you're, you're, you're proud of the area. You're proud of the grapes. You're proud of everything that goes into that bottle. And you're, you're, you're claiming this is my stuff. And that's, what's <laughs> fantastic, you know? Um, and it really is, it is beautiful. It's got so much, it's got, it, it's opening up. I had just opened it right before, um, but it's got so much dark fruit and blue blueberry and dark uh, cherry and all of that in it. And each time you taste it, as, as you saw, I was like tasting as you were talking, it just gives you a little bit more. It's even, it's even now has a little bit of chocolate coming out of it. Um, so it is, it is a lovely, lovely wine. And uh, we will be diving into the other two bottles and uh, they will be going on social media, but thank you so much for taking your time. Okay. And uh, I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your information about ancient peaks. Well, Laura, thank you for having us on. We really appreciate you and you tell all these great stories about wine. That's great to get that out there. We really appreciate being part of it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. You are special. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is Wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha. Give me the sweet, sweet wine.